0: our service. Yeah. Hey, that's pretty enthusiastic. I like that. Hey, before I dive in, we're in the middle of a series called Epic. Before I dive into that, I uh, just want to remind everybody Tuesday Uh, is the time that we vote, so be a good citizen, show up, vote, uh, and also be praying for people who uh, are running for election or re-election. For example, one of our own, Jerry Miller, is uh, running for—she loves her job as a county —stand up, Jerry, don't be shy, there's Chuck and Jerry, Uh, she's running for um, county auditor, and she loves her job, and just be praying for—I'm coming to find out that elections can be kind of stressful— on a family, and they're expensive, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on there. So, although she never looks like she's being bothered, but I I don't know, I'll get the true story from Chuck. But anyway, um, just be praying for her. And also we have Bill Reinecke, I think, in the house. He's no stranger to Grace, uh, running for state representative. So uh, we're glad to have him back here at Grace, sitting over there with Mitch. And uh, just a key time. We also have uh, some non-partisan voter guides at the information table, uh, just uh, that answer questions, tell you where people stand on a bunch of issues that are important to Christians. For example, as this last week, I was talking to Judge Shuff. He's right back there, and we were having a conversation about issue one, and it's kind of complex. It's 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 got a lot of. There's a lot of issues with issue one, but if you want to know more about that, in that voter guide that you can get at the information table, if you turn to the back page, it explains all that, and we just want to be informed, and again, we want to do our civic duty and vote, and as Christians, we want to pray for those who are running for election that, uh, that you know, they would, they would follow God and just that, you'd, that God would take care of their families as they go through a stressful time. All right, we're ready for Epic. Okay, so... Epic is this series where we're basically going through the Old Testament just to connect it all so it makes sense from creation all the way to Jesus, it all ties together, and it does all tie together. For example, if this platform... Was a timeline, it would start over here in Genesis. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we're, we're told about creation. So we as believers believe that God created the world. And I know people push back on that, uh, especially people that are listening to scientists who happen to have n- a naturalistic philosophy. But either way, you take your position on faith. Because scientists used to believe that the universe was eternal, so it didn't have a beginning, but now we know, science has proven the universe is expanding. If you back that up, that means there had to be a beginning. They acknowledge that. And so where'd that come from? How'd that start? They have no answer for that in their naturalism. We, as believers, have an answer for that. And then not only did he create the universe, but he created life. And again, naturalism does... We're not against science, we're all for science, but we understand that people interpret science either through a naturalistic uh, philosophy or that there might be more. So as a Christian, we look for the naturalistic, Explanations first, but if if there is no natural explanation for something, no natural evidence, then we keep our minds open and broad enough to consider that maybe there's something beyond nature that explains it. So you have life. For example, today in the 21st century, our brightest scientific minds in our best laboratories cannot create life. We don't know how life came. We can't even create a seed. But yet, what's the explanation from a naturalistic philosophy is that it happened by accident. And then not only life, but the crowning achievement of creation was Adam and Eve. We talked about Adam and Eve and how Adam and Eve did not evolve, but they were actually created By God, by the way, regarding evolution, because that's the naturalistic explanation that doesn't have anything supernatural in it, so that's what's taught in schools, but scientific evidence is showing that that can't be. For example, the information in DNA, that genetic material, where does that come from? The more complex the organism, the more information that you have to have. Well, if you have an organism, where does the increasing complex information come from? Out of thin air? It's not already there. So, for, and, and so, that's gotta come from somewhere. Now, genetic information can be scrambled, genetic information can be lost, but you can't add genetic information out of nowhere. So, for example, when it's scrambled, we have a mutation. A mutation is never beneficial. For example, you can have a a calf that's born with five legs, but that fifth leg doesn't help it run, doesn't do anything. It's a liability. We, in our labs, we can manipulate uh, the genes of a fruit fly and make the fruit fly have four wings instead of two, but that fruit fly can't fly with four rings. The, The mutations always limit. They never enhance. And by the way, what we cannot do is breed a fruit fly with a hoof or a calf with wings because that genetic information is not in that DNA. Does that make sense to everybody? So we're saying you're taking faith on all these positions one way or the other. Believe what God said or just take a faith because there's no naturalistic explanation otherwise. So in the garden, there's Adam and Eve. God puts them in a perfect environment. They have everything they need and God gives them one rule. One tr- they got everything they need, but one tree, don't eat this. It's almost like there's one rule, just so they'll be reminded there is a God and they're not God. One rule, but in their freedom of choice that God allows them, they, they are tempted and they violate that rule. By the way, just like all of us have violated that rule, and that's how sin, the virus of sin, enters the world. So we talked about Abba and Eve, then then, uh, after that we talked about Noah. In Noah's day, People had begun to multiply on the earth, and everybody used that freedom of choice just like we do to sin. Only everybody was, was doing just sinning terribly. It was just a bad deal, doing everything against God, to where God's going, whoa, what is going on? And he decides to hit the reset button. And the way he does that is he finds one family who's still faithful to him, which is Noah and his family, floods the earth, they say and they're saved from that, and the earth is repopulated. So we have this story of Noah then the Bible in chapter 12 sort of goes from a global view which it'll get back to in Jesus and narrows down to one family who is going to bless the whole world and one lineage that is going to produce the Messiah that will bless the whole world by the way that was promised at the curse of Eve saying her seed would take care of this problem that's the lineage And that one person was a man named Abraham. God chooses Abraham, calls him to go to a place he's never been, Canaan. And God promises that he's going to give him that land. And God promises Abraham that through him, the whole world would be blessed. And God told Abraham several things about his lineage over the next several hundred years and even thousand years. He told Abraham all this stuff. And then Abraham, he moves there. And then Abraham's grandson is named Jacob. And so we talked about Jacob for a while. Jacob has 12 sons through four different women, and he experiences all the family conflicts that that kind of arrangement is going to bring. It's not a pretty sight, and as a matter of fact, these 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. What's significant there is the second to the youngest, the 11th son was named Joseph, and his 10 older brothers hated him, and Joseph had a little brother, but he's not in play because he was too young. But the ten bro- his 10 older brothers hated Joseph so much that when they had the opportunity, they sold him into slavery, and Joseph was taken down to Egypt as a slave, betrayed by his brothers. We talked about how God used Joseph down there, and although he suffered, he was actually a slave, but he did very well, but then he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, thrown into prison. He rotted there for a while, and then he finally had an opportunity when the Pharaoh had a dream, and some of these other prisoners said, hey, well, this guy interpreted some dreams. He says God does that, and so they pull him out. He tells Pharaoh the dream, which is, hey, you're going to have seven years of abundance and seven years of famine. Get ready. Pharaoh, that all makes sense to him. He thinks Joseph's onto something, unlike all the other wise men in his country that couldn't explain it. So all of a sudden, Joseph raises to second in prominence in the land of Egypt. Seven years later, the famine hits. This affects Jacob and Joseph's brothers back in Canaan. They need food. They end up coming to Israel, uh, coming down to Egypt. Joseph's kind of wondering where they're at. He kind of toys with them like a cat does with a mouse and basically trying to see how they treat his full-blooded younger brother named Benjamin And, and that all goes well as that continues then Joseph invites Jacob and the whole family clan of 70 something people to come down and settle in Egypt because the famine isn't over yet they settle in a land named Goshen and everything goes well for a while and then Joseph dies, and the Pharaoh that knew Joseph dies, and another generation comes into power, and they don't have this relationship with Israel. In the meantime, these people of Israel, Jacob's family, they keep multiplying, and the Egyptians see them as a threat, and they enslave the people of Israel. This enslavement lasts 400 years, which is actually what God told Abraham before all that happened. Now, 400 years later, God raises up a leader. This man's name is Moses. Moses hits the scene, and we talked about him, and he go, he's uh, kind of a fugitive from Egypt, but he goes back down, delivers Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. You've seen the movie, and then they go into the wilderness. In the wilderness, they're, 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 they exodus out of egypt they're going to canaan but god has them spent 40 years in the wilderness because of their lack of faith and they're not ready to go into the land the most um, significant thing that happened while they're in the wilderness is that god meets moses on mount sinai in the wilderness and gives him the law and the law this the, these are the books of the bible that we skip there's genesis there's exodus And now we get into Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and that's the law. And the most significant thing about the law is the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, although they are 3,500 years old, 3,500 years old, they're also useful for us today. And here's how they're useful. When you ask people, and let me just ask you, do you think that you are a good person. So you don't shout it out. Just hold that answer in your head. Do you think you're a good person? Because actually, if you want to answer this question, God gave us the Ten Commandments for us to be able to answer this question. And if you'll remember the Ten Commandments, they go like this. Commandment number one, no other God... By the way, eight of them are stated in the negative, eight out of ten, and that's just really to make them concise. But number one, no other gods before me. So... Have you violated this command? Which means, have you ever put anything in front of God for your entire life? At any time in your life, have you ever made something else more important to you than God? If you've ever done that, that's yes, you have violated the first commandment. Second commandment, no carved images. We feel pretty good about not making God into a carved image, but we do something different in the 21st century. What we do is we run around and we say things like this. Well, I think God is like this, and I think God is like that. And anytime we're thinking that God is something other than who he revealed himself to be, we are making a God in our own image, and we are thus violating commandment number two. The third commandment, Is not to take the Lord's name in vain. Yesterday, I was at a football game in Columbus. And I was sitting there, and in the row behind me, there was one of these guys that's kind of obnoxious. He was really negative. His language was terrible. He's just cussing up a storm. And and I grew up with that. You know, that doesn't, you know, I get it. And, And he's doing all this, but, you know, really on the home team, everybody's doing everything wrong, just one of those guys, kind of making the game hard to enjoy, right? And so he's just shouting, shouting, shouting all this stuff, and then... He shouts the name, I mean, he shouts at the top of his lung the name Jesus, my Savior. I turn around, and I look at him, and I start thinking about not violating any commandments, and I start making sure that I'm not <laughs> doing anything wrong as I do this. So I turn back around, and so I'm kind of coming up with a plan. You know, what, what if he does that again? You know, what, how am I going to But he never did it again. But anyway, so if you've ever said the word Jesus as a cuss word, or to make a point, or to put an emphasis on something, that's taking God's name in vain. And that's a violation of commandment number three. Commandment number four is to keep one day in seven holy, that we rest one day and we honor God with that day. Every week, that's what we're supposed to do. And if we've ever not done that in a week, we've violated that command. Commandment number five, which I left out in the first service, is honor your parents. Honor your parents, which means as a child you obey your parents, and as a grown person you provide for your parents. All that is wrapped up. Have you always consistently obeyed your parents? And as an adult, provided for them. If you haven't, you've violated commandment number five. Commandment number six is do not murder. And a lot of us are feeling pretty good about that one. And then Jesus comes along and says, hey, by the way, and he knew more about the law than anybody. And he said, hey, you know what? If you ever hated somebody in your heart and you wanted bad for them, you've basically violated the sixth command in your heart, even though you didn't have the guts to murder them. And then I'm thinking, oh, commandment number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. Same thing. Some of us can feel pretty good. Hey, well, hey, that, that kind of worked out for me. But then Jesus comes along and says, if you've ever lusted, if you've ever looked at anyone with lust your entire life, you're really committing the root of this sin in your heart, and you violated the seventh command. The eighth commandment is, thou shalt not steal. And we usually give ourselves a pass on that, which would include, for example, if you're sitting at work and somebody's paying you and you're making posts on Facebook, that would be you stealing time that somebody paid you for, and that would be theft. So if you've ever taken anything that didn't belong to you, you violated the eighth command. The ninth commandment is do not lie, and we don't really hardly need to talk about that. (laughs) But, uh, you know, that is... Have you ever exaggerated your accomplishments? Have you ever played down your your failures? You know, and if you're doing that, it's usually because you're more worried about some person's opinion of you than God's opinion of you. And then the 10th command is thou shalt not covet, which means you shouldn't look at and resent something that somebody has, including uh, their accomplishments, their look, their successes, You know, their money, their stuff, whatever it is, that's a violation of the Tenth Commandment. So now, have you violated any of these commandments is what we're asking. Because if you have, according to God, you are not a good or a righteous person. And I got to tell you, I'm zero for ten. And maybe you are too. And that's why the rest of the law has this thing called the sacrificial system because just how we don't measure up to the law, they didn't measure up to the law in Moses' day either. And so in the time of Moses, they're realizing the same thing, man, I am blowing this. And so Moses, God tells Moses that there is a provision in the law and it's called substitutionary atonement, which means they start slaughtering animals. They kill an animal and that temporarily covers their guilt. And why is that happening? Because that's the only way that God can be merciful and just at the same time. There's a lot of people and things that people claim are gods in the world. And a lot of times people will say their God is infinitely just or infinitely merciful. But they're never that at the same time. They can either show mercy or justice, but not both. It's only through the sacrificial system that God can be both infinitely merciful and infinitely just at the same time because he's not denying the sin there's guilt and that's just where people are saying hey i'm guilty so i'm going to take this innocent innocent animal and i'm going to slit its throat ugly death and as because that's really what i deserve in my guilt and then that covers me temporarily in faith until i have to do it again which you have to do it all the time because we sin all the time. Oh, and by the way, there's a lot of pushback on the law. I, I don't know if you've noticed this. You know, oh, the law. Oh, you believe the Bible. Oh, you believe, oh, God. You mean the one in the Old Testament that says, hey, don't weave two different fabrics together into the same cloth? That God, the God with those kind of rules, a lot of rules, right? Oh, you mean the God that said don't plant two different kinds of seeds in the same field? What's up with that? Oh, you mean the God that says don't eat shellfish? That's bad news? Yeah. Yeah. You see, people who use those portions of the law to attack Christianity or God or the Bible, they're either uninformed or they just want to mock God. They're uninformed, and you see this all the time on the internet, you know, on Facebook, all these posts, you know, all this stuff, or late night TV or comedians, you know, whatever. People are always doing this, but it's because they don't, they're uninformed. Because the Old Testament law, these books that I'm talking about, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the law divides into three different categories. The first category is the moral law. This is the principles of what's right and wrong for all people at all time. For example, the Ten Commandments. The second section of the law is called the Civil Law. The Civil Law says things like this. Hey, you know, if you have an ox and he gets out and he ends up goring somebody and that person dies, the ox should die, but you didn't know it was an accident. You're not responsible. But the law says... If your ox tries to gore people and you have him pinned up, but people are saying, you know, if that ox ever gets out, he's going to kill somebody. And then that ox does get out and gores somebody to death. You kill the ox and you are responsible. It's kind of the same thing like in our justice system, civil law, how we interact with each other. And that's usually not such a problem. It's the third category of the law that everybody has issues with. And this is called the ceremonial law or some people call them the clean laws. These are the weird laws about, hey, don't mix these fabrics, hey, don't mix these seeds, hey, stop eating bacon. You know, these are the laws that we're going, what, what is up with this? And, and so we ask why, why these laws? Well, these laws existed temporarily for a certain group of people for a certain time span. And it was God's people, the nation of Israel, and part of that was to keep them separate from other cultures of the world. So God gave them these these, uh, rules to follow that kept them different from all other people. By the way, that worked. Because at this time of the law, who was in what we call Israel today? Well, the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Hittites, the Jebusites. See any of those around? Nope, they're all gone. But the Hebrew people, the Israeli people, they're still here. It worked. But more than that, it's this. It's God reminding us that we cannot keep the law. We can't keep the law morally. And now God's reminding us, how do we have a connection with a holy and righteous God when we can't even keep the law in a superficial way. Follow these kind of rules. Doesn't even really have anything to do with our heart. It's just follow these rules. On the, we can't even do that. If we can't keep the law in a superficial way, that keeps, us, that keeps us informed. That makes us understand. That confronts us with the truth that we have morally failed God. And we have no right to approach a holy and righteous God. So that's the law. We good on the law? That's the law. So when people ask you about the law, or people, you, this, is how, this is how you push back. You just inform them of the truth. So then they get the law, and they're in the wilderness, which is in between Egypt, kind of the, the Negev, in between Egypt and Palestine. And they wander there for 40 years because God says they're not ready. And then Moses dies. Moses dies just as they're getting ready 40 years later to enter into the promised land. And God raises up a new leader, and his name is... Joshua, and Joshua is who we're talking about today. So they're encamped on the east side of the Jordan, getting ready to cross over into the new, this new land, this land that God had promised them. And oh, by the way, so this is called the conquest. Oh, and there's a bunch of pushback on this too, right? You know, people, say, well, how could God allow for Joshua to go in and kill all these people groups? Which, which if, you, if you just think about this logically is extremely hypocritical. Because anybody who's living in any nation anywhere today, if you trace the roots back, they fought to get that land. There's nobody that lives anywhere that didn't fight to get that land. And and some people say, well, what about the Indians before? you?" No, when the Indians were here, there were over 100 tribes fighting each other for land. So we shouldn't be hypocritical like that, but but that's not the issue. The issue is people say, well, where's the morality of that? We're forgetting God owns everything, and God is judge. And by the way... It's not just that Israel is conquering the land, it's God is actually saying that the people who lived in the land at the time of Joshua had sinned so much, their iniquity is the way it says, has become so great that God waits the 400 years until they're beyond hope of all return and deserve judgment, and then that's when they go in. As a matter of fact, let me read you a verse from Genesis 15, that talks about that. And and again, we're here on the timeline, but this was back where Abraham was, all right? So here's what God says to Abraham, Genesis 15, 13. He says, God said to Abram, which was what he was called before Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. He's talking to Abraham. Abraham's in Palestine. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. See, what God's saying is, Part of the conquest of the Lamb was God judging the people who were in the land at the time. And so that happened. So now Joshua is getting ready to go into the land. Joshua is who we're talking about today, and we'll continue our timeline next week. But Joshua is ready to go into the land. And uh, as he does that, as he gets ready, he sends out a couple of spies. And he sends out these spies. And they go recon the west side of the Jordan. And the main obstacle to the conquest is the fortified city of Jericho. Jericho sits at a strategic place just west of the Jordan River, just at the northern end of the Dead Sea, and then to the west of Jericho are mountains, and it guards a pass through the mountains. For example, that's how you'd get from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea, and there is Jericho, fortified city. And Canaan, or Palestine, is filled with fortified city-states. So these two spies go in, and they're there, and they actually go right into the city of Jericho. Well, they don't want to be caught and they're trying to blend in with other travelers and they actually go to a house of prostitution owned by a lady named Rahab. And so they're there with Rahab where other travelers might be hoping that nobody's going to identify but it doesn't work. The king of Jericho hears, they know all about Israel on the other side of the river and they're waiting and their their guard is up and they've heard a bunch of stories and, and they're like, they're all on edge. The king hears two spies are at Rahab's place. But then Rahab does something unique. She believes the God of Israel. She thinks God is the one true God. And God has, and all the people of Jericho knew. They, they allowed God allowed Israel 40 years ago to cross the Red Sea, and now they've been wandering in the wilderness, and anytime somebody attacks them, they wipe them out, and now they're coming to this land because God promised them. She knows the whole story, so she tells the spies, hey, I'm with you guys. What do we do? And she hides them, commits treason against her city-state, hides the spies, the king they come turn turn them over she does it she says well they just left she lies to them and says they're they're heading back to the other side of the jordan all the search party heads out to try to head them off before they can get back and cross the jordan but in the meantime her we're told that where she lives is in the city wall, and she, because of that, the gates are sealed. She's allowed to, to get them out, and then she goes and tells them, hey, hide in the hills the other direction, hide in the hills to the west, and then when everybody starts searching, circle around and go to Joshua, and that's exactly what they did, and so they bring news to Joshua. Joshua. And she says, hey, I'm gonna do this, but if I do this for you, spare my family. Would you spare my family? And they say, yeah, we'll spare your family. But here's the deal, you hang a red cord out of your window so we can identify you and whoever's in that house will be spared. Joshua prepares his people to cross the Jordan River. They actually cross the Jordan River and God, it's that flood stage, it's springtime. We know that because they participated in Passover It's springtime, God stops the waters of the Jordan just like he stopped the waters of the Red Sea 40 years prior. They take the Ark of the Covenant now that they made after Moses told them to do that in the law. They park that in the middle of the Jordan River and this nation now of 2 million people crosses the Jordan River and camp on on some plains called Gilgal, not far from Jericho. They camp there. They wait. God asks, or uh, Joshua asks God, you know, how are we going to do this? And God basically says, hey, I'll do the main fighting here. You just do what I say. And so the plan is, he goes, here, here's what I want you to do. Every day for six days, I want you to get all the fighting men, and I want you to march out of Gil- Gilgal, go to Jericho, circle at once, and come back to camp. And so they do that. They had so many fighting men that even though Gilgal was a couple of miles away, depending on how, how wide their, their procession was, it could be that, that the front of the line got back to Gilgal before the end of the line started for Jericho. There's that many fighting men. Well, then on the seventh day, God says to Joshua, on the seventh day, I want you to march, and then I want you to go around it seven times. Well, now the whole army is there. He says, and then there's going to be a trumpet blast by the priests, and then the men are to shout, and I'm going to cause the walls to fall down. The walls of Jericho, we know by excavations, that was, it was an outer wall, and then an inner wall with a rampart, and then a higher inner wall. So you had this inside part, which was mostly just open, but there was just one place in the wall where they'd actually built some houses, and that's the only place that didn't fall down, which kind of makes sense with the story. Of course, people push back on this too. Archeologists will say, you know, there's no evidence for this time for a conquest of Jericho. This is amazing to me. The first two archeologists that did excavations at Jericho said, yeah, we see the evidence just like the Bible says. But in the 50s, a lady named Kathleen was a foremost ar- archeologist of Jericho. And she says, there's, she didn't believe the Bible or God. And she says, nope, there's absolutely no evidence of the conquest of Joshua conquering Jericho. But here's what she did find. This is amazing. She found that within 150 years of when she said Joshua would have done this, she found that the city of Jericho was destroyed and all the walls were knocked down except for one small section of the wall that happened to have houses in between the outer wall and the rampart And she's saying this. She did not believe in the Bible. And she's saying, and the really super unique thing about this is the walls were torn down and then the city was set on fire. You can tell that archaeology. And she said, this is very strange because normally you would conquer the city. You would get in the walls. You'd breach the wall somehow. You would burn the place. Then you would deconstruct the walls if you weren't going to occupy that. She says here it's the opposite. The walls come down then it burns. Oh, and by the way, here's what else she found out. She found that there were pots almost full of grain because the reason that's significant is two things. Number one, the normal way for somebody to take a fortified city like of Jericho is that you would surround Jericho, surround the city. You would make it airtight where nobody could get in or out and then you would wait two years until the people starve to death because they're expecting it. So they they've accumulate a lot of stuff but eventually that runs out and the people surrender the only other way is maybe you focus on one piece of the wall and you put all your efforts to there but then all the defenders are just killing you the whole time so that doesn't work so well or you do the trojan horse you, you trick them somehow to pull them out or get something in there trojan horse kind of a deal but the point is this archaeologist is saying wow don't believe in god don't believe in the bible but but all these things happen, and these full pots of grain meant that this happened in the spring. Oh, that's when Joshua did it because they celebrated the Passover. that's a spring thing. And why is spring? That's when they harvest in the lower Jordan Valley their grain, pots full of grain, charred. Other thing, there was no long siege, or the pots wouldn't be full of grain and just left there. So you're looking at this, and here's the foremost archaeologist of Jericho saying, "I don 't believe in the Bible, and I don't believe this happened. Because it's 150 years off of when I'm saying Joshua should have happened. But besides that 150 years, everything is exactly the way the Bible says. Weird, right? That's the archaeology of it. But what's all this mean for us? Well, here's what it means. There's a holy God who gives us a choice. We see this pattern throughout the Old Testament up to the point we're at now. A holy God who gives us choice. And and we need to choose sides. We need to choose God. That's what Rahab did. Maybe the least likely person to choose God, right? She's a pagan. She rejects all her other gods. She's immoral. She's a prostitute. And she says... I believe in God, and she chooses him. So, no, there's a holy God who gives us a choice. Choose God, but then we've got to follow through with faith, and the way we follow through with faith is we take action. That's what Rahab did. She followed through a faith, and she took action. She hid the spies. She, she did all that stuff that I described at great cost to herself. Well, sure enough, after the seventh day and the, the walls fall and then the army attacks from every side by crawling through the rubble and attacking the city and they spare Rahab who lives in this one section that happens to be attached to the wall in between the walls that didn't fall. And her and her family, everybody she packs in the house that believes God, they're all saved from that destruction. Um, By the way, Rahab ends up leaving her lifestyle that she had previously and attaches herself to Israel. She actually goes on to marry a guy named Salmon. Happens to be from the tribe of Judah. And then they have a a son together, and his name is Boaz, which is a great name for a son. And Boaz has a great-grandchild named David, And David becomes the greatest king of all of Israel and continues the bloodline, the promise of the Messiah, who's called the son of David. And so Rahab, the prostitute, is mentioned in the New Testament in the lineage of Christ. And we're reminded one more time that it doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter what sin you've committed, God has made a provision for you because you can't keep the law and either can I. I'm O for 10. And that is by putting our faith in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ who ended the sacrificial system because he was the once for all perfect sacrifice, a perfect man who had no sin and the only one qualified to pay for our sins, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the one we will be talking about, the one that the whole Old Testament points to Jesus. And when Jesus comes, everything goes global again, and that's where we are today. So how about it? Do you believe that there is a God who allows you to choose? And if that's true, you have to choose sides. Do it your way or do it God's way. Choose God, and if you choose God, it's not enough to just intellectually kind of assent. Okay, yeah, I'm alright with that. You have to follow through like Rahab did. You follow through with faith by placing your faith in God and the way you know you're following through with faith is when you take action based on that faith. Now, please understand me, the action that you do or the good things you do never pays for your salvation. That's not why that you're on God's side. It's all through faith, but your actions reveal your faith to be real. Does that make sense? most important decision that you can have, ever make. I'd like us to stand as we close. Father God, we thank you for who you are and that you've revealed yourself to us and we don't have to just try to creatively figure out what you're like because we mess that up. You've revealed who you are. You've revealed your holiness, your purity, your justice, your mercy. And God, you've revealed your standard of right and wrong. And and that serves to, to show all of us that morally we've messed up. But you have provided a provision for us. Through your son, Jesus Christ, the perfect substitutionary sacrifice who died in payment of our sins so that we don't have to and we don't get that by doing things we get that through faith and faith alone we understand that Lord but when we have true faith it shows up in our lives and father that's what we pray for those of us who are believers help us to be faithful to you And that we would live our lives in a way that honors you, showing our faith. And Father, for our friends who are with us today, or or maybe family members who are hanging out with us this morning who who are not sure where they stand, or they think that that because they've done some religious ritual, that that somehow makes them okay with you, God, help them to see and reveal yourself to them. Lord, draw them to you, just like you drew drew us to you, even though none of us deserve it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.